Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from First Chronicles, chapter 11, verses 4 through 10, chapter 12, verses 16 through 18, and chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. We will begin on page 342 in the Bibles in front of you. Page 342, 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 4 through 10. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is, Jebus, where the Jezebites were, the inhabitants of the land. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You will not come here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said, Whoever strikes the Jezebites first shall be the chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, so he became chief. And David lived in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. And he built the city all around from the Milo in complete circuit. And Joab repaired the rest of the city, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men, who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Chapter 12, verses 16 through 18. And some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold of David. David went out to meet them and said to them, If you have come to me in friendship to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if to betray me to my adversaries, although there is no wrong in my hands, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you. Then the spirit clothed Amasai, chief of the thirty, and and he said, We are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you, and peace for your helpers. For your God helps you. Then David received them and made them officers of his troops. And now verses 38 through 40. All these men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron with the whole heart heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of single mind to make David king. And they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had made preparation for them. And also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys and on camels, on mules and on oxen, abundant provision of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins, and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. Amen. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in and through your word that you've given us us the spirit to see. Thank you for the work of Jesus, that he has made a way for us to come into your presence. I ask that this morning you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Would you give us the spirit of grace, a spirit of revelation? God, would you give us insight into what you're at work doing? God, would you shape us according to your word for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. So take your notes out. We're going to dive right in this morning. Look with me at letter A here. So these two chapters, uh, chapters 11 and 12 in the book of First Chronicles, provide uh, uh, for us a stunning portrait of the events that surround David's coronation as king over all Israel. So if you were with us last week, Ricky laid out the first three verses of chapter 11, which is this portrait of David becoming the king of Israel. So Saul had been king and the Saul and Saul had been rejected by the Lord because of his treachery and his wickedness and unfaithfulness to what the Lord had called him to. He did not obey the commandment of the Lord and he did not seek the Lord, but he sought after uh, his own ways. And because of that, the Lord took the kingdom away from Saul and gave it to David. And we saw last week that Israel had this heart to come and make David their king. But these two chapters now present for us this really wonderful picture of the events surrounding David's coronation. In these chapters, the author of Chronicles attempts to show us the theological and thematic elements that go into David's growing favor as the king over God's people. Now, if you're just reading through this, it could appear to you on first kind of pass over to be disjointed or uh, unconnected, or how do I make sense of these two chapters in the broader arc of the story? But what I want you to feel as you um, go and read this, maybe on your own time this afternoon or sometime this week, maybe read through it a couple times, what you're intended to feel in this part of the narrative structure is overwhelmed at how much momentum the Lord is shifting from Saul's house to David's house and how quickly this is happening and how fast it's happening. And kind of this tsunami of support is crashing in on God's purposes as seen in King David. It's important to note as you read through them, that these chapters are not chronological in how they present the material. What you're going to see again and again, we'll probably highlight this a lot in our time in Chronicles, is the chronicler is not as concerned with the historical narrative as he is with the theological narrative, right? So if you want the historical narrative, what's happening like in the history books, go read first and second Samuel. That's going to give you the detailed account of this event happened and then this event happened and this event happened. And you would be tempted in reading Chronicles to go, well, this guy doesn't have a clue what's going on, right? Like he tells the story completely different than the other guy did. And what we're supposed to know in reading first Chronicles is he absolutely knows the other story. And he expects you to as well. His point is not to lay out the historical narrative. He wants to give you God's perspective theologically on what was happening at this time to strengthen your resolve in following and pursuing the face of God. That's what he's doing. So these aren't chronological necessarily in their, in their presentation, but they're theological and thematic. Look at letter B. So as a section, these chapters are presented to give us two predominant themes, I believe. First, we see God's favor to David, right? What you're supposed to walk away from these two chapters feeling is David isn't just a great guy. 
right? We actually know that from first and second Samuel. It's not like David was this perfect guy. And because of his perfection, all these things just keep happening. What we're meant to feel is what you see in verse nine of chapter 11. Look with me at it. David became greater and greater. That's kind of the the summary statement of these chapters. Why? Because the Lord was with him. This is what you're supposed to walk away from. That God is with this person. And because God is with him, it's, there's, there's momentum. There's growth. There's this glorious uh, tidal wave of unity and abundance that happens. So much so, I, I, I wanted us to even feel in the little bit that we got to read uh, that it starts really small, right? Like there's, there's this group of three guys and then there's another group of three guys and then there's 30 guys and then there's families and then there's tribes and then there's all these military things to the point where it grows at the end. They're abundantly feasting and drinking together in the presence of God. And there was joy throughout the land because God has been at work. That's the momentum of this chapter. So we see God's favor toward Israel. The second theme that I want us to see here is that there's leadership lessons or response lessons that we can have in pursuing God's purposes specifically, I want to highlight this because this is going to come up several times, specifically in seasons of transition. So as things are shifting and there's uncertainty because the old way of doing things is being supplanted, but the new way hasn't been established and set yet, there are principles for leading and for responding and how we hold our hearts before God that are important from these chapters that I want for us to see this morning. So they they provide remarkable leadership lessons that David paints for us that demonstrate a heart posture oriented towards seeking to fulfill God's purposes. The chronicler highlights these leadership realities as ideals for those who are called to build God's house and pursue his purposes, particularly in seasons of transition. So we can't forget the purpose of Chronicles, right? The purpose of the book is to strengthen a weak, fledgling remnant of people who have come back to the land to build the temple, to seek to strengthen them by reminding them how God has acted in the past so that as they respond to him, they can be confident that he will act again. That's the point of these books. And let me just talk about one thing really quickly uh, related to the leadership lessons, particularly in a season of transition. One of the things we see in the Bible is that when God does something new, he always leads in the same way. He always leads in the same way. And so these little ideals that we find here are meant to give vision and courage for you and me. How do we respond in seasons where things are unstable and unsettled and moving around? I want to just say this, and I I, I don't know if I have time to prove it this week. I'm actually hoping next week I get to prove it. This Lord willing, the sermon next week is proving this. But let me say it this way. This is the season that we're in 
as a church. And I think the broader church, both our spiritual family and the church, I think in the culture we find ourselves in is in a remarkable season of transition. We've left an old way, but the new way hasn't really been established yet. And so these principles are really important for us to discern and understand and lay hold of and ask God to kind of uh, integrate them into how we see and think and respond so that we can be strengthened and have courage in the midst of waiting. Because look at letter C here. These chapters are walking out theologically and thematically something that was happening over 14 years in Israel's history. What you don't get in reading these chapters is this was a slog. Okay? These are the years where David has been exiled away from Saul. Right? He's running for his life with hundreds of paid assassins chasing him down. Okay? He's been told he's going to be the king. And you want to know how God goes, I'm going to get you to be the king. I'm going to make the current king hate you, oppose you, persecute you, make you run for your life. He's going to pay people to run after you. You're going to hide in caves for years. This is how I'm going to get you ready. So that's seven years. Then there's seven years where David, after Saul dies, the the tribe of Judah comes and makes him the king over Judah. But the rest of the tribes are in a a contentious tension over uh, allegiance to him. They're they're following Ishbosheth, Saul's son. And there's this like civil war and this rising tension in this time. So things aren't like cheery and awesome and amazing. It's hard, right? The old way has moved, but the new way hasn't been established yet. And it's a slog and it's hard and it's difficult. And then we move to the time when David becomes king over all of Israel. So I think this is the moment we find ourselves in. So here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to walk through these chapters. I'm going to give us some handholds tell some stories, engage our imaginations. And then I want to drill in and go, what are some themes that we can derive from these chapters as it relates to how to respond before the Lord together? So look at Roman numeral two. The first thing we see happen here is after David becomes the king, the first story that we have is he and all Israel take Jerusalem. So they narrate that David becomes the king. And then what we have to do in the chronicler's mind is we have to show how Jerusalem becomes a part of the people of God, right? Jerusalem has an important place in the unfolding story. It's the place where the temple is going to be. It's going to be the place where David reigns from. So we have to get it into the possession of God's people. We see this in uh, verses four to nine. David and all Israel go up to Jerusalem. David says, whoever strikes the Jebusites first will be chief and commander. So Joab stands up and he goes, I want this. I want to do this. Uh, He goes up and takes the city of David, the stronghold, and they gain possession of the city. Look at the top of page two. So the chronicler highlights four names of Jerusalem in the course of two verses. 
right? This is giving some importance to the city, some importance to the story, helping you situate yourself on what's happening. First, he calls it Jerusalem. This is the name that the city is known by in Israel's understanding and their history, right? Then he calls it Jebus, which is the ancient name of the city under the rule of the Jebusites, right? So the Jebusites are a Canaanite tribe that live in the land. The people of God were meant to come in and drive them out and they don't do it. And so the Jebusites are still around, left there to be like a thorn in the side of God's people. We, we hear in the book of Judges. They're still there. And the reason that the chronicler wants you to know this is the, that city is he wants you to know, hey, in this season, God was fulfilling 500 years of what he had commanded them to do, but they, were, they could not do. This is how golden the, the, the season is. David is finally being obedient to what they were meant to do all the way back when they came into the land. So you're to go, oh, wow, this is a season where God is uh, blessing and breathing upon the people of God in such a way he's giving strength for them to obey what they were already always called to do. Then he calls it the city of David and Zion. Look at letter C again in capturing Jerusalem. David was finally obedient to God's command to drive out the inhabitants of the land. He did this by driving out the Jebusites nearly 500 years after the initial conquest under Joshua. So we see there's a season of fulfillment happening in this passage. That's what you're meant to understand. Look at Roman numeral three. So then we move into this portrayal of what you could call David's mighty men. This section outlines the chiefs of David's group of mighty men, those that were gathered to him to lead with him, to partner with him, to support in accomplishing the assignment that God had given him. The purpose of this section is to see that God provides his people with strong support by sending courageous, gifted, faithful leaders to provide help along the way. Look at first Chronicles 11 verse 10 here. So now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom. Now I want you to read another verse with me. First Chronicles, or this is second Chronicles 16, nine. Sorry about that. Second Chronicles 16, nine. God tells his people, my eyes are running around to and fro throughout the earth to do something. I'm looking for a heart that is blameless toward me. And what will I do to that heart that is blameless for me? I show them strong support. How does God show strong support? I think a lot of times we imagine that it's going to be, I I don't even know what we imagine, right? Have you guys ever heard of that story of the the guy uh, cast adrift at sea and he's like in the boat and it's storming and he goes, Lord, save me. And somebody comes up on the cruise liner. They show up next to him. They go, sir, do you need help? And he says, no, the Lord is going to save me. Then he dies and he stands in the Lord's presence. And the Lord goes, why didn't you save me, Lord? And the Lord goes, I did. I sent 
deliverance and you didn't accept it, right? How many times do we imagine if God is going to show strong support, he's going to like break in, rip open the heavens, do something miraculous, move things around and, and come for us. You want to know how he sends strong support? He sends rando guys. And side note, in uh, Samuel, these guys don't have like a glowing reputation. Uh, When David's in the caves of Adullam in Samuel, it said all the worthless men of Israel were drawn to him. Right? David's looking and going, wait, 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 these guys? Wait, these are the disgruntled ones. Can't you send me some of the like movers and shakers? Can't you send me some of them? And God goes, I give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards me. So what we're supposed to see here is one of the ways that God gives strong support is he sends people and, and, and laborers, courageous, faithful, gifted people to come and give strong support along the way. Letter B, many of the exploits of this section are intended to demonstrate a particular way of viewing the natural events of the world. Each of these men has done something mighty in pursuing God's purposes. Yet it's clear that they've been helped by the Lord. What you can see in reading these is is what you might want to call like a sacramental view of the world. Right? These guys were just doing what was in front of them. And because of that, the, the narrative comes much later from God's perspective, I was working. Right? So when you get, uh, when you get, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Eleazar just taking a stand in a barley field, right? He's like not moving, but he probably didn't feel all that amazing at the moment, right? Everybody else is fleeing. Everybody else is running. And he's like mustering up the courage to stand firm going like, I, I don't want to run away. Everybody else is running away. I think I'm supposed to call, call the stand here. I'm going to stand here. And it says, the Lord provided strong deliverance through him. Right? I don't imagine that Eleazar felt in that moment like God was providing strong deliverance through him. I think he probably felt pretty weak and pretty like um, small and stood where God had put him. And we see the, the, the declaration is God was working in and through these. Okay, let me just tell you the stories. They're fun. Joshua Beam. These are also great names for your children. <laughs> he wielded his spear against 300 men at one time. Joshua Beam, the Hackmanite was chief of the three. So you've got these three men that were chief among David's circle. These were his leadership team, the closest to him. These three guys that were there from the beginning and they're entrusted with helping him lead. He was the chief of these. He wielded his spear against 300 that he killed at one time. Then we see Eleazar taking a stand in a barley field pushing back the encroaching Philistines and keeping God's land, right? Verse 12, Eleazar, the son of Dodo. He was with David at Pas Damim when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. 
There was a plot of ground full of barley and all the men are fleeing from the Philistines. Meaning they're overwhelmed, they're afraid, they can't stand, they're running for their lives. And Eleazar takes a stand and goes, this is the barley field that belongs to the Lord. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to move. He took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it. Hey, I want some of y'all to take up that as your life verse. Go. There's a lot of really great life verses in the Bible, right? I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. There's no condemnation in Christ. All those are awesome. I want somebody to take up this one. So he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it. I'm not going to give an inch here. This is the field that God has given me. This is my family. This is my vocation. This is my calling. This is my spiritual family. This is the plot that God has given me. And I don't care what Philistine comes to try to take it away. I'm going to stand here and I'm going to trust that God's going to deliver me. That he is going to defend and he is going to protect. Take up that as a life verse. Letter E, this section gives a wonderful window into how David's men perceived him. Their loyalty, their willingness to risk their own life for his sake. And it also shows that David honored the sacrifices of his men. There's this like beautiful relationship between David and his men where they're willing to risk their lives to, to, to walk things out for him. And he is remarkably uh, overwhelmed to sacrifice their honor and, and or, or honor their sacrifices. Look at this here in uh, verse 17. They're down kind of near Bethlehem. They're in the caves of Adullam and David in the middle of the night, one night, he's like, man, there was this, there was this barbecue shack back in my neighborhood that I grew up in, man, I'd give anything to taste that again, right? He's doing it, but he's talking about a well of water, right? You don't know what that means right now. Uh, so, so in our day, this is like, you're, you're posted up downtown and you're like, man, you know, a ways up there, there was this gas station that used to sell barbecue. I would give anything for a Z man right now. And then these guys Three more guys. So these aren't the initial three chief guys. These are three more, right? Among the 30, there's three, then there's 30. That's really like 47, but they had already like made t-shirts. Uh, so, so it grew and, but they were still called the 30. There's like 47 of them, but these guys are set apart within the 30, but not in the first three. These guys, they go, if David wants some water, water from that well, let's go get it for him. He, he's God's anointed. We, we want to, we want to be in line with what he's doing. Let's, let's demonstrate that and bless him by breaking through the armies and going and getting some of water. So they do this at the risk of their own life, at the, at the cost of their own, um, potentially dying at the hands of the Philistines. They break through, they take the water, they bring it back. And David goes, I can't drink this. This, this costs too much. This, your sacrifice, David's not being like coy here, which, which if you don't catch what he's doing here, you're going to miss something. 
He's going to, he's actually saying the sacrifice that you all did. The only person that's worth that is the Lord. So he pours it out as an offering to the Lord. He goes, I couldn't, I couldn't partake of what it cost you to do that. I can't take that. I can't hold that responsibility. Only the Lord is worth that sacrifice. And so he takes it and he pours it out for the Lord going, I honor what you've done. This isn't him going like, guys, what are you thinking about? I didn't really want that water. Like this is him going, this matters so much to me. This touches my heart so much. The only one who this is actually worth, worth is the Lord. And so he pours it out as an offering to the Lord. Abishai also kills 300 people with his spear. All right, go to page three. Oh, Beniah. I like Beniah. This one's fun. Beniah killed a giant by disarming him and killing him with his own spear. Look at verse 22. Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, a valiant man, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck a lion in a pit on a snowy day. This is a pretty hard challenge, right? A lion. Anybody want to fight a lion? Anybody want to fight a lion in a pit? Anybody want to fight a lion in a pit when you're cold and you can't see and you're going to slip everywhere? Okay. Beniah. Then what's he do? He struck down an Egyptian. A man of great stature, five cubits tall, seven and a half feet. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam. But Benaiah went down to him with nothing but a staff, little stick. And he snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. So we have these portraits of these people that God had sent to give strong support to David. Look at Roman numeral four. You can turn your page in your Bible. The men who came to David at Ziklag. So the next section, that was looking at individuals. This next section, we're going to look at some families and some tribes that are beginning to come to David while he is at Ziklag. And if you are not familiar with this story, this was a season in the life of David where he was on the run from Saul. He left the caves and he went down to the Philistines and they give him leadership over this city that belongs to the Philistines. This is actually not a great season in the life of David. He's in rebellion. He's in open disobedience to the Lord. So this is, this is not just like everything's going well and he's crushing it. Okay. He's actually running away from the purposes of God and hiding in the midst of it. And the chronicler gives us this flashback that even in this season, there were people that were beginning to see that God was at work out in that young shepherd boy from Bethlehem. That's where God was working. And so we want to get in line with what God's doing. We don't want to stay with what we, what we know. So in chapter 12, the chronicler starts to introduce a flashback to a time when David was fleeing from Saul, hiding among the Philistines at the city of Ziklag. This section is designed to show while Saul was king, there were people that knew and understood what God was doing. And he began to throw their lot in with his purposes. One of the remarkable highlights of this section is there's two waves of Benjaminites, Saul's own kinsmen, 
that come to David during this season. You can see that in verses 1 to 7 and 16 to 18. Look at verse 2. He's talking about a group that's coming to David. He says they're bowmen. They could shoot arrows, sling stones with either their left or their right hand. They were Benjaminites. And he makes it explicit for you. Saul's kinsmen. Right? So these people are looking. They're seeing God's working over there. Wait. That's going to cost me everything. Right? These are Saul's family members. What does it cost them to leave, to go to David and support him? Potentially everything. Their lives, their well-being, their futures. It potentially costs them everything. They go out to him in the wilderness. Look at letter D. David required that those that came to him were equally yoked to him in vision. Right? He took them... He, he brought them in and he made sure that they were aligned in vision, right? David goes out to meet these Benjaminites. They're coming to him and he says, if you've come to me in friendship to help, my heart will be joined to you. But if you betray me, although there's no wrong in my hands, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you. Then the spirit clothes Amasai, the chief of the 30. And he says, we're yours, David. We want what, what you want because... We think God is working in this place. And with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you, peace to your helpers, for God helps you. Then look at this at the end of verse 18. What does David do with these guys from Benjamin, Saul's house, who come to him and they go, we're casting our lot in with what God's doing. What does David do? It's fascinating. What does every other king in the ancient world do? to the other king's family. You kill them. Right? When you become the king, you kill all the old guy's family. You don't want any pretenders. You don't want anybody to step up and go, I've got a right to this. You lay them low. What does David do? He takes them and makes them officers in his troops. Unbelievable. Very upside down takes those that are his enemies and brings them close to him and restores them to a place of dignity and honor. Look at Roman numeral five. In this section, we now get to this like great wave of support, this wave crashing in. The kingdom is taken from Saul, given to David. The number of troops and the families, they come to David to make him king. It's intended to show that his support has reached a critical mass. We'll see the sons of Issachar possessed unique understanding and wisdom of how to respond and lead the whole of their tribe and household to pursue the things of the Lord. If, uh, Lord willing, this is actually what we're going to talk about next week. This is one of the themes that I want to highlight out and focus in specifically on something related to verse 32 in chapter 12. But we see that these men, they understood what God was doing. They, they actually had eyes to see spiritually what God was working at. And because of that, they understood how to respond. They, they knew what to do. They knew where God was working and they knew how to respond to it. And then this last portrait we have is a unified people experiencing joy, delight, and abundance. 
aligned with God's purposes, right? This last several verses, there's this wholeheartedness, this single-mindedness, this unity that leads to a season of joy and flourishing for the people of God. All right, go to page four. So I could do a couple things here. Uh, I, I, there's a couple places I could go. There's a couple ways that I could tie this out. The one, and it would be fun. It would be really great. I could get really amped and excited and we would get really amped and excited is I could talk about and highlight the typology of this related to Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who's walked into the wilderness. That's gone outside the camp. That we have to see that he's at work and align our lives with him no matter the cost. Putting everything into the basket of following him. This is where God's at work. He is the one who's the greater David who is walked through trial and tribulation and suffering. That he might bring all the tribes of the families of the earth. Any and all who would put their faith in him into a season and a life of of feasting and joy and abundance in the kingdom of God. That's, that's a fun sermon. That's a really fun sermon. That's not where I'm going to go with it though. I, I just have to say, I, I, I would like to, but I feel a different, I feel a different pull this morning. I want to highlight the thematic significance of these chapters and try to bring them down for us and how I think the Lord would call us to respond in the season we find ourselves in. Again, these chapters are a time in Israel's history where they're at a a crossroads. They're at a, they find themselves in an in-between moment, right? There, there's a long period. It's 14 years where they're kind of in between things. God has left and abandoned the old and the new has not yet been established. Look at letter B. These chapters give us many thematic insights into living in transitional or what you could call liminal times, right? Liminality is the time when you've left something old, but you haven't seen the new thing established yet. And it's disorienting, right? It's super disorienting. You keep reaching back for what was, and it isn't there anymore. And you're going, okay, well, how do do we step into what's new? I, I don't feel stable yet. And God goes, I love when you're there. What a place. I brought you there. This is a really, really, really good place. Here's what I want you to do here. And I think these chapters speak to some of these. Giving us theological perspective, both among leaders and among people, of navigating the in-between seasons. When the old way is dying, but the new way is not established. In these kind of moments, God leads us in similar ways. And I think these chapters provide many insights into God's leadership. And our response in these moments. Again, I want to just name this. I don't want to, I don't want to miss this. This is the season we're in. We redeemer are in this season. And I think the church in our cultural moment is in this season. I've said this. I said this a lot earlier, like the more proximate to it. I don't say it as much now, but the events of 2020 I believe God used to decimate an old way of things. And I think he did it culturally, societally, 
economically, and I think in the church. You can't talk to a single pastor that doesn't go, what happened to your church in COVID? Literally, it was this like catalytic moment and it didn't create anything. It just exposed what was there. It didn't make anything happen. Whatever was latent in the, in the foundations, the wind doesn't create the crack. It just emphasizes it. Okay. So we walk through this season. We find ourselves. It's like that way we can't grab back onto it. And that doesn't mean it was bad. It means it's done. Right? I give thanks to God for the old ways that he worked. I really do. I give thanks to him. He did so many amazing, wonderful, beautiful things in this place, not just in the seasons before COVID, but for hundreds of years. But it's gone. We're in a new season. We are in a new season and we need to know how do we live in the in-between times. And I think these give us some tips. Okay, letter C. God uses the days of small beginnings. Okay, this is, this is a remarkable ideal that we see here. Throughout scripture, we see that when God is at work in a new way, it always happens in small and seemingly insignificant ways. Okay, God wants to literally change all of human history. What does he do? He's born in a stable in Bethlehem, right? Seems like maybe the least to the eyes of man, significant way to change the world. Then he lives in obscurity for 30 years. Then he ministers for three years. There's a lot of momentum and excitement, but it also makes a lot of people really angry. And then the moment that he purchases salvation for any and all who will look to him is one of scandalous, uh, seeming failure, executed as a criminal on a Roman crossbeam. This is always how God does things, right? Why does he do it this way? It requires that we have the faith to perceive what God is doing, right? We have to, we have to ask God for his eyes to discern where are you at work, God? Where are you working? And you often aren't working in the ways that our natural minds would think that you're working. Where are you working? It, uh, it requires that we have the courage to align ourselves with this work. The problem with God doing things in small, seemingly insignificant ways is it often costs us something, right? It costs us, hey, the status quo is always easier. It's always easier. This is actually why God has to shake things up sometimes. Very few of us of our own accord would ever look and go, yeah, 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 you're on the, you're working way outside the camp in the wilderness. That crazy guy eating locusts and honey, that's you. God, you're at work over there. Very few of us. We might think like, man, there's that crazy guy out there. We want to go get entertained by it. But how many of us go out and cast our chips into it? Right? And God knows that about us. So sometimes we don't like to change the status quo. So God will go, 
with a big old smile on his face. You're not going to like this for a minute. No discipline feels good for the moment. But you'll thank me. One day, when you partake of my glory, you'll go, Oh God, thank you so much that you didn't leave me over there. So it takes faith, it takes courage, and it takes patient endurance. Right? We have to, we have to keep with it through hardship, opposition, and insignificance. Again, the chronicler thinks you're bringing to the table in this the story that this was 14 years in the making. This wasn't just like bang, 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 bang. This was hard, difficult, dark. Can you imagine nights in the, in the caves around the fire going, we missed it, right? I thought, I thought God said that you were going to be the king. And there's like 3,000 really trained assassins running us down. Maybe we're crazy, right? There's this, there's this gap between when God speaks and he says, I'm going to deliver you. And he actually does it. When God says, Hey, I'm going to break through in this way. And then he actually does it. There's often a gap and we have to have patient endurance in the midst of this. This leads us to go. We need to learn to not despise the day of small things. When God is working in small, imperceivable ways. Right? I actually think this is what God is doing here in certain ways. I think God's inviting us into walking into a season of embodying like a new work, a new wineskin, what God's at work doing. It's really small. It's really rough. It's really uninspired at times. Uh, I think of our prayer meetings. Our prayer meetings are awesome. I, I love it. I can't believe that 40 of y'all or so show up almost every Wednesday night. Hey, more of you should show up. This is, this is a massively important part of what God's doing in our body. I'm stunned that we've got people showing up on a Wednesday night to pray. But if you're showing up on Wednesday night to pray, right? It's not always the best, right? Sometimes there's silence. Sometimes you're like walking in going like, oh, is this, is this what we're doing? This is what we're doing. Okay, this is what we're doing. All right, here we go. What's Ron talking about? I can't understand what he's praying for. Why, is it, why are they praying for this? Why are they, what, what, what is that even talking about? I don't understand that. I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this is what's going on in my heart. I'm not even talking about y'all's heart, but I know what's going on in y'all's heart too. I'm going like, what? What are we, what, what's happening here? Where am I? I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I, 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 want, I want to go home. Like, what's happening? No, 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 Lord, I want to be here with you. This matters. I want to seek your face. Wait, what, what are we talking about again? How did I, what am I praying for? Why did I pray that? Like, I can't, all these things are going on in my mind. It is little, it is rough, it is ugly, it is seemingly insignificant, and God loves it. And God is working. God's doing powerful things. Hey, people, we're like showing up every week and at the end of it going, hey, if somebody needs prayer for something, uh, if you need healing in your body, would you have somebody pray? We're having people stand up, raise their hands. People are getting healed. God's like releasing his presence and his power in the midst of our meetings. And they're, they're like, they, they don't seem like that much. They seem like the caves of Adullam. They don't seem like the highlight of glorious days of old. You know, whatever that is. But this is what God does. Do we have the eyes to see it? Do we go out to it? Do we go, you know what? 
I'm going to take the difficult places and I'm going to cast my lots in with it. All right, I'm going to say one more thing and then I'll get out of your way. Letter E. Hey, thank you. You're being patient. I love you all. God calls people to partner with him. One of the things that this chapter does is demonstrates that God uses really natural means to accomplish his perfect supernatural purposes. There is a dynamic interplay between the activities of God through these people in these chapters. I want to say two things. Number one, God honors the labors and efforts of people as they seek to walk out good works done in partnership with his grace. Hey, this is the means by which God does stuff. When you and me, weak you and me, take a stand in the barley field and go, God, oh my gosh, the the Philistines are so overwhelming. I don't know what to do here. I'm shaking in my boots. God, would you please show up? And he goes, don't run away. Just stand there. Stand there. Don't give up. Defend this place. Don't move. But it's just me. I just got this little staff. He's got a big old weaver's beam. What do I do? Just trust me. Don't run away. Don't run away. I know me. I know you. You guys know you and you know me, right? It's just us. God loves to take weak you and me, insignificant nobodies from nowhere and accomplish his purposes in and through us. It's crazy that we get to stand in partnership with the King of Kings and see his kingdom made known in the world through our simple, weak obedience. That's crazy. We get to do it though. This matters to the Lord. This is how it happens. We can't go, God, show up. We want to see your presence. We want to see your power. We want to see something happen. We want to see you at work. Send it, send it, send it, send it. And he goes, hey, I'm showing strong support. Stand there. Stand right there. Don't run away. Ask me, just take the step. The thing that he's put in front of you, take the step, take it, walk forward in his grace. He moves in the middle of his people seeking to walk out good works done in partnership with his grace. Number two, God is looking for people who will stand courageously with his purposes. We'll talk more about this next week, but the world, I keep going back to this one. The Philistines are pressing it, right? We can all acknowledge that. Always tempting to encroach and overtake the people of God. The spirit of this age, the prince of the power of this world, whatever you want to call it. God desires people that will stand courageously with his purpose and the ability to lead in the day that God visits is cultivated in the days of hiddenness. Courage happens in the small places. This is where the victories are going to happen. This is where God's going to release it for people who take the stand in small places, right? In places where you're going, that is not true. And I don't have to jump in and accept that as truth or embody that as truth or give lip service to that that's truth or make make everybody feel okay like I think that that's true. You can stand for the truth with Jesus in small places courageously. That's how he prepares people to stand with him in the days of visitation. Okay, we'll talk more about that next week. Amen and amen.